Just a quick note before we get started with the program. I wanted to let you know that on Monday, the 17th of June, this coming Monday at 10 p.m. Eastern, we'll be doing one of our live courses, our webinars. This will be with Peter Robbins, and he'll be talking to us about the UFO abduction phenomena. And I've got to tell you, the course that we did last month on why we should take UFOs seriously, it was one of the best uh, courses we've had so far. That one's uh, archived over at jimherald.net. You can watch it. I hope you'll be able to join us live on Monday evening, 10 p.m. Eastern. I know that time is convenient for some. For others, it's not as convenient. Uh, since we can only pick one time, we just try to work and find the best time that we can. And if you can attend, the, the real bonus there is being able to ask Peter live questions, and he's very generous with his time. It's scheduled for an hour, but uh, last time I think we took it at least at least 30 minutes longer than that because he had a lot of questions uh, from the from the audience. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Check it out. Go over to jimherald.net, and we hope that you're able to join us to talk about the UFO abduction phenomenon with Peter Robbins. Now on to the show. UFOs, are they aliens, government secret projects, the imaginings of disturbed individuals, or just outright hoaxes? We're here to find out. Welcome to Jim Harold's UFO Encounters. Welcome to UFO Encounters. I'm Jim Harold. So glad to be with you once again. And one of these ideas that come up uh, a lot these days, and people are very interested in, is the idea of ancient civilizations and, and where did they come from? Some of the technological leaps and so forth that we see, and things that seem like they're out of place for the knowledge that, that ostensibly people had at the time, and the origins of modern civilization. And today we have a great des- uh, guest to discuss that, Michael Tellinger. Uh, his most recent book, which is an updated version of a previous book he had done, is called African Temples of the Anunnaki, The Lost Technologies of the Gold Mines of Enki. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, Michael is a scientist, researcher, and regular guest on more than 200 radio shows in the U.S., the U.K., and Europe. He's appeared on many popular shows such as Coast to Coast AM with George Norrie and The Shirley MacLaine Show. And we're so glad to have him with us today. Michael Tellinger, all the way from South Africa. Thanks so much. We're so glad to have you on the program. It's lovely to be talking to you, Jim. Now, I have just a had of experience uh, with this uh, on a much smaller level in the U.S. About 20 years ago, I helped produce a documentary on the uh, on some ancient mounds that we see here in America, and I dealt with many mainstream archaeologists in preparing for this. And uh, you know, I mentioned something like von Doniken, Chariot of the Gods, you know, because these structures seem so impressive and so almost out of place, and they kind of laughed at me. Uh, so here, here's my question to you. What would mainstream archaeology, mainstream science, what would they have us to believe about the origins of civilization? Who, who, what was the first, in, in their words, the first uh, civilization that kind of got us on the road to where we are today? What, 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 what did the mainstreamers say? Well, the mainstreamers tell us that the first civilizations on Earth rose in a place called Sumer, Mesopotamia. Sumeria, um, and that's pretty much what where you start running into a, a dead end in, in history books and mainstream archaeology. 
Um, it completely ignores um, independent research, um, independent scientists, independent scientific evaluation, which, by the way, is much larger a volume and a number of people doing independent work and independent research than those that are associated with mainstream you know, academic institutions or anything like that. So um, they will tell you that um, um, humans um, evolved out of primitive beings and that we slowly but surely uh, became smarter and wiser and that we've had absolutely no contact with extraterrestrials, that we are the only species in the universe and that kind of nonsense that they have absolutely no scientific proof for. It is just regurgitation of previous um, history books and previous archaeology regurgitation of the same stuff. There seems to be a real blockage in allowing new research, new information from coming out. And I must add to this that the evidence is so incredible, especially when you go to places like Egypt, where you see amazing new archaeological digs, discoveries that are standing closed, shut down with barbed wire around it so nobody can get anywhere near it. No more excavations going on, and they just keep re-showing the same big impressive temples that we all know from Egypt, while while all the the thousands of ruins that lie hidden beneath the sand in Egypt are completely ignored because that would expose a previous, much older history on planet Earth that they don't seem to want to expose. There's definitely a hidden agenda here. Remember, mainstream academia is funded by mainstream money, and there is always an agenda and um, a plan behind the scenes to keep people disinformed and manipulated. And it's spectacular how that unfolds in every crevice of our lives. My understanding is that your work, uh, you know, in some ways uh, provides – in. in I think you feel that it provides physical proof for many of the um, theories of Zachariah Sitchin. And it, can you talk about him a little bit, uh, who he was, uh, what he found in his work, and, and then how you've kind of used that as a springboard? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Zachariah Sitchin has um, a huge number of followers around the world. He also has his detractors, you must add, um, and uh, – Zachariah Sitchin is probably the world's leading translator of and um, formidable writer on the translations of the Sumerian tablets. Now, once again, the Sumerian tablets are at the moment still the oldest translated historical um, record, uh, written record of human history. Um, it takes us back to around 4000 BC of written record of human activity uh, what was going on, and uh, that is a spectacular achievement. Uh, there are other scripts that have not been deciphered, um, so there's much more mystery that lies waiting for us to explore. But Zachariah Sitchin, not just him, many others have reached very similar conclusions. The reason why he's so um, often spoken about is because of his 14-plus books that he's written on the Sumerian translations, the Sumerian civilization, and their interaction with these deities or these beings called the Anunnaki, often also referred to as the Elohim. And that links us to the Bible, the Elohim, the Hebrew word for God or the gods in the Bible. And we realize that when we read the Bible and we re reference the and we read about the Elohim, the biblical gods, that we actually are referring in most cases, not always, 
but in most cases to the Anunnaki, as the Sumerian tablets refer to them in thousands and thousands of translated Sumerian tablets, sometimes referred to as just the Anuna gods, but as Sitchin pointed out, they were actually the gods of heaven and earth, therefore the Anunnaki, um, which adds the earth component to it. And uh, and there's a very clear um, um, historical timeline and historical sequence of events that are then echoed much later in books like the Bible uh, in great detail from the creation of Adam, the creation of heaven and earth, the, the, the flood of Noah, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the journeys of Abraham, and so forth, are all first found in the Sumerian tablets. And in most cases... Uh, in much greater detail with different circumstances. The characters are pretty much the same, but have different names. And you can see that those who wrote the stories in the Bible and, and, and uh, put it into the Bible when it was compiled got their information from much older sources, and those sources at the moment are the Sumerian tablets. But it must also be stated that what Sitchin found in the translations of the Sumerian tablets, and he refers to it quite often, is they refer to their own information that they write in the Sumerian tablets in the cuneiform text format. They refer to a time before time that they got their information from and that they got it from the gods themselves about the time before time. So the history of this planet is far more mysterious and far more exciting than what our very narrow-minded historians and archaeologists and anthropologists, not all of them, but unfortunately the ones that are most often quoted by mainstream media. Uh, our history is far more exciting than those guys would want us to believe. Now, I'm assuming here, I'm taking this from the viewpoint, uh, and I know many of our people are well-read, so they may know some of this, but I like to kind of take it from the beginning so we can get to the jumping-off point where there, there are new things to offer here. Tell us a little bit more about the Anunnaki. Uh, who where, uh, were they? Where did they ostensibly come from? And what kind of wonders uh, did they exhibit uh, to, the, uh, to the earthlings, as it were, the, the, the common people? Well, the Anunnaki are really our progenitors. They are our makers. They are our creators. And the movie Prometheus is actually the story of the Anunnaki on planet Earth. If you just look into the storyline there, it's quite interesting. Um, it seems to echo that kind of um, um, philosophy or, or human history. Uh, Anunnaki are a, a group of advanced beings. They're technological masters, and that is what I am now finding with the discoveries that I'm making, finding the evidence of their knowledge and understanding of the laws of nature and physics that is very, very different from how we perceive it today uh, in our Newtonian sort of reductionist physics approach. So what the Anunnaki are these group of beings that came to planet Earth in search of gold. They were exploring the universe like we do. We're exploring the planets in our solar system. Uh, we haven't sent any people there except the moon. Uh, but um, they were exploring the universe, and they are masters of technology, masters of interstellar flight and intergalactic flight. And they came to this planet, and they found what they were looking for, which was gold in large quantities. And that is why they came and settled here and started a vast gold mining operation, mining our planet for gold. Once again, the reverse situation is encoded in the movie Avatar, where we human beings find another planet that is beautiful and harmonious uh, with people that live in perfect harmony with their planet and everything is perfect in perfect balance and harmony. 
nothing is out of place. And these beings from planet Earth arrive there. They destroy the local native populations. They destroy their lifestyle. Uh, they, they start mining their planet for this mineral called unobtainium. So that is a, a very interesting parody on what happened to us on planet Earth, which many people claim were very um, advanced beings that lived on planet Earth in perfect harmony with our planet, which was then destroyed and disrupted by the presence of the Anunnaki. And also, maybe not just the Anunnaki, various other groups of, um, of extraterrestrial beings that arrived here and started to arm wrestle for dominion of this planet. And um, so the gold mining is the critical central theme of the creation of the human race because the Sumerian tablets in Sitchin's translations um, and various other uh, translations, not just Sitchin's, refer to the primitive worker or the Lulu Amelu that was created by the Anunnaki as a slave race being for the mining of gold. And that's pretty much the reason why we're here. And that is also very important, the reason why you cannot separate gold from human history. It is not possible from all ancient cultures and civilizations. You will always find references to gold, whether it's the God's obsession with the gold, which is echoed in Genesis 2 of the Bible. It is not Adam or the first human humans that were infatuated by gold, but it was God in Genesis 2 that first mentions the word gold to Adam. And you start realizing that the gold mining operation uh, on earth is key to understanding who we are as a species. Now that is, to come back to your earlier question, that is what I have discovered here in Southern Africa. The physical evidence of this vast gold mining operation that spans most of Southern Africa, including South Africa, Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Mozambique, that has been very neatly kept out of, out of sight, out of harm's way by the Illuminati and those that control the flow of gold uh, so that they could keep getting their gold from the golden goose here at the southern tip of the African continent. It's paradise on earth, one of the most beautiful parts of the world. And they've done very, very well doing that. Um, and uh, the evidence of the gold mining is everywhere. I go into it in great detail in my presentations and in my book, Temples of the African Gods, and, and the, 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 new, the newer, improved version, the African Temples of the Anunnaki, uh, which has just been re-released. Um, and it's just spectacular. You know, Jim, there are more than 10 million stone structures that lie scattered throughout Southern Africa. And that tells us one thing and one thing only. There is a vanished civilization that was mining gold that we know very little about. And it, it, it is fascinating. I'm going to ask you a, a question. It may seem a little bit inane, but um, when you think about the value of something, it's almost arbitrary the you know a piece of art uh maybe mona lisa for example uh it's priceless uh most people think it is absolutely beautiful but it's arbitrary it's put on it now why and this is going to sound like a very strange question because i'd love to have a lot of it i don't i don't but i wish i did why was there such a value put on gold not only uh by the anunnaki but mankind and so forth what is it special what is special about gold other than it being a beautiful uh, a beautiful natural resource 
Well, this is a very important question, and you use some interesting words there. You use the word value. Now, this is where the research of our origins, the origins of humankind, the, the, the slave race, the human, uh, human beings, where we come from, why we are here, uh, that is very, very important to start connecting the dots between our origins and where we are today as a species. And that's really why my new book deals with the origins of money and the manipulation of money all surrounding the origins of, of our obsession with gold. So when you use the word like value, it's very important to understand that the Anunnaki did not have any money. They don't use money. Nowhere do you ever read about the Anunnaki putting any value on anything. It is all about just living, living in abundance, having a beautiful life. The only time you see the introduction of money by the Anunnaki, and it's clearly introduced to us in the Sumerian tablets when they talk about that kingdom was lowered to earth from heaven and the gods appointed kings from among the people so that they could rule and control the people. Um, and this is very critical to start connecting these dots. And it is after these priest kings were appointed by the gods or the Anunnaki that you suddenly see the appearance of money on earth. Money did not evolve out of thousands of years of barter and trade like most people are led to believe. That is a lie. That is part of the misguidance and misperception and possibly, um, you know, maliciously introduced disinformation. Money was, was maliciously introduced as a form and a tool of absolute enslavement. And here we are today, 6,000 years around, more, more or less around 6,000 years after the introduction of the first money, now, some people might argue and say, how do you know that? Well, you'll find out in my new book why I know this. So I'm not <laughs> going to go into the details about that. Sure. But 6,000 years after the introduction of money by the priest kings, using the Sumerian temples as the first banks, nothing has changed. The royal political bloodlines, who include the banking families of the world, still run the planet. They control the printing and the supply of money. And we are still completely and utterly enslaved. In fact, more so than ever before by those who control the money. So when you talk about value and you talk about gold, the two are not actually linked. The gold is the obsession of the gods or the Anunnaki, not for the reason that we're obsessed with it. We, and, and very other, another very critical thing here, Jim, is that whenever the conquistadors and the, the so-called explorers, I rather call them the thugs from Europe, that started colonizing and conquering the world in the late 1400s under the, the, the authority of the Pope, wherever they came, the instructions were to find gold. It was really a gold-hunting expedition. And uh, wherever they came, they found the native populations in North America, South America, Africa, India, wherever they got to, they found the native populations having huge amounts of gold. And that's where they started to conquer and colonize those territories. And whenever they asked those native populations, who does the gold belong to? They were always told, the gold belongs to the gods. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. very important to start putting these pieces of the puzzle together, okay? <laughs> because that's not what our history books tell us. They do not connect the dots. Therefore, they don't make any sense. Now you start realizing that it's the gods' obsession with the gold. But why were they obsessed with the gold? Uh, they did not use the gold in the way you we use it. And incidentally, the human obsession with gold came from because it, we weren't allowed to have it. We were the slaves mining it 
and getting it for the gods. It always belonged to the gods. So when the gods either gave some of the humans some a, a little piece of gold or the humans illegally or unlawfully took a piece of gold without the knowing, they would feel very proud of having something that they're not supposed to have that had tremendous value uh, to the gods. They didn't understand the value, but it was perceived to be incredibly valuable and therefore humanity started to see gold as valuable and therefore it started to being used as a valuable commodity much later. Not, not in the early stages. In the early stages, the money, all the money issued was always in silver, never in gold because the gold belonged to the gods. You start seeing the subtle differences. It it is uh, it is fascinating, and why arbitrarily we put so much value on that uh, precious metal. Now, um, I, I do want to talk about the technology a little bit. I know that you talk about the proof uh, there in South Africa. Now, uh, what kind of examples? Uh, I, I know that, for example, um, that that one of the things I believe you talk about is the idea of almost Tesla-like technology that was used to generate energy and, and carve through tunnels to to to, to create these. Uh, these structures. Can you talk a little bit about the the technology that the Anunnaki used, and and some of the sheer size of some of these uh, centers? Because um, if if I'm correct, there some some of them are larger than than Los Angeles. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, and, and you know it's difficult to try and estimate the size of it. Um, just this past weekend, I did a, a weekend workshop in a lovely little uh, guest house getaway in in what's known as the low felt here. It's just a beautiful part of the country. Uh, you know, it's sort of subtropical climate and so forth. And, and that's about a, a 45 minute drive away from my house. Now, from where I'm sitting, if you look around you in a 360 degree, um, stretch, uh, everywhere you look, there are remains of this ancient civilization. I'm right in the heart of it, in the sort of most densely populated part of it. And that's really why I settled here five years ago when I knew I was going to be writing about this extensively and researching it. I, I had to be right in the middle of it. I didn't want to have to take a three-hour trip every time I wanted to come and do some research. So uh, the, the, the size of these settlements are, is absolutely huge. You know, if you take a 45-minute drive in one direction and another one in the other direction, that's a one-and-a-half-hour uh, drive to 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 cross the diameter of this. Now that's bigger than LA. That's bigger than New York. That's bigger than any major metropolitan area today. Um, and, Amazing. And and I'm talking driving at not at at snail pace like in traffic. Driving at you know at sixty miles an hour. Um, so it's it's a spectacular size and and the size and the the number of these structures. So let me just define some of these structures because. We're talking about what we refer to here as stone circles, circular stone structures built out of smaller stones, not like the megalithic stones you find in Egypt or in South America. These are smaller stones weighing between probably 10 and 50 kilos, most of them. There are some that are up to several tons, but most of them are between 10 and 50 kilograms. And um, uh, that would translate into twice as many pounds, I guess, something around there, um, between 20 and 100 pounds. Um, and and they they are circular. All every one of these circular structures is circular, and yet each one is completely and utterly unique. There are no two stone circles that are the same, and that already starts to you know raise a few questions. 
These stone circles have been known about for more than 500 years already in these structures. When the Portuguese that were discovering, you know, the Spanish were taking the Americas and the Portuguese were given uh, parts of Africa and, and Asia to go and explore by the Pope in the late 1400s. So when the Portuguese came on shore from the Mozambican side, they started finding these stone circles and the Makumati people, who are actually Hindu Dravidians over here mining gold 3,000 years ago already. There's a whole other hidden history that nobody knows about. And um, yeah, that's a whole other debate, I guess. But <laughs> the, the, when they started asking the, the native population who built these stone structures, and I think with reference to Great Zimbabwe, which is very impressive, um, and that's you know probably a month's journey inland from the port of Safala in Mozambique. Um, when they started asking uh, the native population who built these structures, they were told, they don't know. And and that's very important information. Modern-day historians claim that they know exactly who built it, why the native population who lived there 500 years ago already said they did not know who built these structures. And uh, so this is what the Portuguese recorded in their, in their books. And that's really critical information to know a little bit more about the history of this. But the... the, in, the fascination with these stone circles has gone on for 500 years now, but it's only when I started getting involved with it for more than just more than five years ago now, did I start looking at it from a scientific perspective and trying to understand, look at it differently from what all the others have done, which is really historically and archaeologically and so forth, which doesn't make any sense. It'll just leave you nowhere. What, first of all, when I started counting them, uh, the shock hit me when I realized there were not 4,000 like was previous, previously thought a century ago, or 20,000, which is a number that was put forward in the 70s. I calculated well over 10 million of these stone structures. Oh. And, you know, that's a, that's a shock to the system. But the fascinating thing is that we're dealing with circular stone structures, each one completely unique. They have no doors or entrances. Now, that is the true mystery, because when you realize this, yes, there are some modern ones, there are some that have got more recent adaptations with doors and entrances where you can see more recent civilizations have occupied and used it, so they convert them. So, you, But you can clearly see where these adaptations have been made, mm -hmm. where these stone structures are actually part of a much larger network. And uh, so when you realize there are no doors and entrances, you realize that these are not dwellings. We're not dealing with dwellings. We're dealing with something else. And this is when the aerial photography becomes critical in starting to make sense of what's going on here. We're dealing with a giant network of circular structures that are connected by these channels that look like roads from aerial photography. And the, all of this lies in a much larger network of like a giant spider's web effect that are actually the agricultural terraces that hold all of this together. It is nothing stands separate or alone. Everything is connected, and that is a mind-blowing discovery. Now, uh, before we finish up, a little more about the extraterrestrial origin of the Anunnaki. Now, we we uh, we have several shows here, and we put you on uh, UFO encounters because of the ET aspect, the idea that they're coming from beyond. Can you tell us a little bit about where they came from, uh, how they got here, 
and uh, are are their descendants still there today? Oh, absolutely. I believe that there are many Anunnaki descendants on earth. I believe when the Bible talks about the, you know, when the sons of the gods came down and had children with the daughters of man, that's actually referring to the Anunnaki, and that's where we start seeing the hybrid, the creation of the hybrid species. And this is where you start seeing some of the genetic um, encoding that you start seeing giants, uh, you know, from among human the human race, because the Anunnaki are known to be very tall, about nine feet or three meters tall, um, much larger than what we are, very f- pale skins and uh, what seems to be sort of blonde, blonde or very light hair and very much Aryan looking features, blue eyes. That's who I believe we get a lot of those features from, um, from the Anunnaki. Um, they were, as I said, also referred to as El or Elohim. That's what they refer to themselves as. And, um, and they, according to Sitchin, they come from a planet that they refer to as Nibiru from Sitchin's translations and his, his deductions. Um, and, um, th- that's, that's a big question mark still. What is the planet that they come from? I believe there's a lot of deception that going, that goes on there. Um, I believe those that were left behind, the Anunnaki remnants, as they often refer to, still live, live among us. It's very possible that some of them who have become very powerful on this planet have become those that pretty much run the planet and control the, the draconian behavior of what's going on on this planet by the governments. Um, that is obviously an, a, a point that is, you know, heat debated very heatedly. And, um, uh, it definitely seems that the Anunnaki had opposition from other ETs of, of uh, maybe many, many other ETs uh, and had to protect their domain on many occasions and possibly may have lost the domain. There are a lot of gray areas. However, the fact that we were created as a slave race or a slave species, as my very first book is called, Slave Species of God or Slave Species of the Gods, um, by the Anunnaki to create, to, to mine the gold, that is now irrefutable because we find the physical evidence of these gold mines. What I didn't tell you is, is to, um, about the stone circles is that the reason why I'm so confident that this is all part of advanced technology of the Anunnaki is, first of all, we've had channelings, many, many channelings that confirm this. We've had past life regressions from people that know nothing about me or my work that have told stories about their past lives in the Anunnaki gold mines and how they were building the stone circles. And very most importantly, how sound was used as the source energy. And this is where it takes us back to Nikola Tesla, because I believe Nikola Tesla used the sound of Mother Earth to create his radiant energy fields. He knew how to convert the sound into electromagnetic waves and and then use it in the way that he did. And um, this is exactly what I've measured and confirmed scientifically. There can be no doubt or question about it. This is not a, a questionable thing. It's proved beyond any any kind of doubt. The stone circles all generate huge amounts of sound frequency energy or energy through sound frequency, and it's those sound frequencies that go into the gigahertz, very, very high gigahertz, several hundred gigahertz in some places, like Adam's calendar, for example that those sound frequencies are actually responsible for generating the electromagnetic fields that then emanate out of these stone circles. So the entire grid of stone circles in Southern Africa is one giant energy grid that is sitting there waiting for us to tap into, to give us free energy without burning water, using oxygen or hydrogen or fossil fuels 
using the sound frequency of Mother Earth to give us free energy and do with what we need to. Now, it's a fascinating topic, and I always find it quite interesting that uh, it seems as though uh, Tesla was uh, quieted. His theories, uh, you couldn't meter it, so uh, the powers that be weren't uh, weren't so interested. Well, it, it's been a fascinating conversation. I know we could go uh, on and talk about your new book, but I would like to do a, a show about that when that comes out. I, I think it's a fascinating topic. But in the meantime, I know you have a lot going on, conferences and tours and so forth, and working on that book. Where can people find more about you and everything that you're up to? Yeah, thanks very much, Jim. Yeah, just go to my website, michaeltillinger.com, uh, michaeltillinger.com. And yeah, I'm about to embark on a nice extended tour of the United States, followed by a tour of the United Kingdom. And, um, and, uh, just go into my website and you'll start and you'll see I've got, f- uh, three major events happening in the USA. First one is in Southern California, lightning in a bottle. And then a month later on the 11th, uh, 10th, 11th, 9th, 10th, 11th of August is the big one, Contact in the Desert at Joshua Tree in Southern California, where all the big speakers and researchers will be there. So check that out. That's going to be an awesome event to come to for those that are interested in this from um, George Nury, Stephen Greer, David Wilcock, Graham Hancock, um, Jim Mars. I mean, you name them, they'll all be there and I'll also be there. So it's going to be an awesome weekend. Um, and then check out all the other stops. I'll be doing uh, 15 or 16 other cities, mostly around California, and then down through Las Vegas into uh, New Mexico and Arizona and Texas. So check out the venues that I'll be at. Well, Michael, thank you so much for shedding light on this fascinating subject. We appreciate you for being a guest on UFO Encounters. Thank you very much, Jim. Look forward to our next chat. And thank you for tuning in to the program. We certainly appreciate it. We hope that you found it interesting. I know that I did. And we'll talk to you next time. And don't forget that upcoming paranormal course with Peter Robbins uh, this coming Monday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Just go over to jimherald.net and you'll see how you can register for it. And uh, enjoyed our first session with Peter. And I think you'll enjoy this one as well. Thank you so much. We'll talk to you next time on UFO Encounters. Bye-bye, everybody.